Okay, I think Miss Cindy has some uh, things for the kids in the back today. Is that right, Miss Cindy? So if children would like to go back for children's church. You know, I woke up early this morning, and uh, well, actually, I probably wasn't really awake yet, but I was dreaming that I dropped my notes. And so I was trying to gather all my sermon notes, and, and as I was doing so, I realized that, that these weren't the right notes. I had the, wrong, I had the wrong message. They were Sunday school class from a few weeks back. And in the process, I think I woke my wife up. It had something to do with my CPAP max, probably. Um, that's what I was trying to gather together, I think. Um, we'll tell you some other stories of sleepwalking another time. And so then I started going through, okay, what, what's my sermon about this week? And, and as I went through the points, it, it dawned on me, that's last week's sermon. And, and then my alarm went off early, and it was the wrong time and the wrong alarm. And so I hit snooze and set it for another time. And, and somewhere in the middle of all this, our son Michael called from San Diego to let us know that he, he arrived this morning uh, for his exit interviews with the Marines. And, um, and then Angie's alarm went off, and then finally my alarm went off, and by the time it was all done, I had no idea what I was preaching on today, and I woke up thinking, what am I going to do? I know sometimes we approach the Old Testament, and, and we feel that way, don't we? Everything feels jumbled up, and, and there's these people in the wilderness, and there's this thing in Egypt, and there's these kings, and prophets, and judges, and, and a lot of that all gets mixed up and bumbled around, and have you ever read through the Old Testament and you're trying to figure out the context of all these things and all these people that lived thousands of years ago? Am I the only one that's been there? Tell, tell me I'm not. Have you ever done that? You're reading through the Old Testament and, well, how do I fit all this together? Well, I do have my sermon notes, and, and they are the right ones, so we, we're, we're good for the passage that we're in today. But if you're joining us for the first time this week, we are in week five of a 31-week series that, that covers the entire Bible. Uh, we're on a journey from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, and our goal is, is not to go down every path that we could in, in the Scripture. Uh, we won't be examining all the details that are found throughout the Bible, but instead what we're going to do is we're going to take a, a helicopter ride up over the forest, and we're getting a, a good view of, of what everything looks like from above. How, how is everything put together? What's the structure of all this? So that as I'm studying the Scripture and reading the Bible in the future, uh, I might be able to make my way through the story and understand where some of these pieces fit in. And so as we move our way through the story, um, we've talked over this last few weeks about the lower story. On the lower story, that, that is the individual accounts of, of different people's lives. And, and there's these lessons that were learned along the way. From man's perspective on this lower story, it, it oftentimes seems disconnected. Sometimes when we read through the Bible, we read through these disconnected stories and we go from one person to the next and, and, and sometimes we don't know the order that that happened in. And it can sometimes be hard to see what God is doing especially when we sometimes don't understand the culture and, and some of the things that happened so long ago. Um, and, and we find that our story is also in that lower, lower story. And sometimes our lives, we, we ask that same question. How does this all fit together? How, how does this go in with God's plan and, and, and fit into his overall purpose? 
But we've also seen that from God's perspective, we have this upper story. This upper story that unites all of it together. And, and we see that throughout human history, God is accomplishing His master plan. God created man to enjoy a, a relationship with our Creator. But we rejected that, didn't we? We rejected His story. We chose sin instead of the God who loves us. Throughout the story, we are discovering how God is restoring this perfect relationship. And, and He's taking, taking us on this journey through thousands of years to bring us back to that state where we have this perfect relationship with Him once again. So each week, we've been reviewing some of the key words to remind us of how that, some of that structure of that story is put together. And so this morning, we're going to jump right into that review. And I want you to participate with me uh, like we've been doing. We'll go through it twice and um, the first time, the keywords will be up on the screen, and the second time, uh, we'll see if we can get all the way through it without, without any helps together, all right? So let's cover the first seven keywords, if you will. So we have creation, fall, flood, Babel, patriarchs, Egypt, and Moses. So God created the heavens and the earth. Man rebelled against our Creator and fell from our sinless state. When we, complete, when we completely corrupted everything, God sent a flood and He judged the mankind. He judged the world. The Lord continued to show His grace over and over and over again to bring us back to His promises, back to the promise that there would be a deliverer that would come. But man continued to rebel. And so once again, we saw that God judged the world at, at Babel. Confused their languages. A couple thousand years before Christ, God chose a man named Abraham, and his descendants, he chose them to do something special, to be a part of something special. And so in Genesis, we're introduced to the patriarchs, that is the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their sons, and, and we're introduced to these patriarchs because God is going to bless all of the nations through this one family. And during a famine, God preserved that family by caring for them down in Egypt. And after 400 years, that, famine, that family grew into a great nation uh, before they then became slaves to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And we saw in, in, in Exodus last week that God heard their cries and sent a deliverer named Moses. And that brings us to the book of Exodus, which we started last week and we'll finish this week. And so... With that, it's your turn. So from memory, let's go through that one more time, all seven key words. Good, good. All right. You guys got it. Well, in the first 12 chapters of Exodus, uh, last week we saw that we were introduced to the leader that God raised up who, who led the Israelites out of Egypt. Again, a man named Moses. Uh, we saw that God went to war with the gods of Egypt using ten plagues. They weren't just plagues that were there to judge Egypt, but they were there to judge Pharaoh. They were there to judge the gods of Egypt. And each one of those plagues was a direct attack against the various gods that they served. And we also saw how God instituted one of Israel's greatest holy days, uh, a holiday that the Jews all over the world still celebrate together today. Uh, it's called Passover. And that feast was a picture of the provision that God had made and that God would one day make through Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
It was in that first month of the year 1446 B.C. that God led the Hebrew nation out of Egypt and He delivered them. Over the next few chapters, uh, we, we did a series on Exodus and we watched what happened over those next three months from chapters 13 through 18. But over those next few chapters, He's going to perform mighty wonders in front of their eyes. Not just the ten plagues that happened in Egypt, but as they go out into the wilderness, uh, the entire nation is going to cross through the Red Sea on dry land and Pharaoh's army is swallowed up when the Red Sea came back together. God's going to lead them through the wilderness with a, a pillar of fire by night, a cloud that gives them shade by day. And God will provide water for them in the desert and food that literally comes from heaven for the next 40 years. All of this takes place over a three-month period. And along the way, God is training them. God is preparing them and showing this new nation, you can trust me. You can have a relationship with me. I'm going to take care of you. And when everything des seems desperate and everything seems hopeless, you can trust me. Look to me. Call out to me. And so it's at the end of that three months, they, they looked back and they saw how God had been with them just as he had promised. He told them, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. And they looked back over that period and they, they realized that God had done everything that he had promised he would do and God was there. Now that brings us to the second half of the book of Exodus. And I am aware that many people come to this point of the Bible. Maybe you're reading through the Bible in a year, or maybe you're doing our seven-month read through the whole Bible, and you come to Exodus chapter 18, and you've just read this amazing story, and then you come to chapter 19, and you're reading the second half of Exodus, and you read Leviticus and Numbers, and, and we're tempted to think that some of these passages are what? The boring parts of the Bible, right? In these chapters, we read about God's laws for the people, we read about building plans for the tabernacle. And in Leviticus, we read about all these specifications for the sacrifices. And, uh, and there's all this talk of blood being shed. And, and there's these priestly duties and these holy days. And, and I know that the instructions on those pages, I know that they were written in a time that's far removed from your life. A long time ago in a culture that's very different from ours. And their system of worship has been replaced with something superior, right? If you've been with us through Hebrews, right? Much superior, and specifically Jesus. And so we look back on that, and I, and I know sometimes it seems old, different, boring. And, and so it can be hard to relate as you read through all that. Down on that lower story, it can start to feel like it's just a bunch of rules. Isn't that what the Pharisees saw it as? In Jesus' day, they, they missed the point. They saw Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and it was just a bunch of rules to follow. And, and in order to please God, they had to be perfect in keeping those rules, and they missed the whole point. But this morning, I'd like us to consider what God is accomplishing on that upper story. As we look through these boring passages of the Bible, what, what is God doing through all of this? What's the point of it as he makes this covenant with them and, and as he gives them these laws? And we're going to kind of summarize a lot of it, into, and, and some of it's going to be generalized because I know there's a lot more specifics and a lot of details in these passages that we're not going to get to. But, but here's the big idea that I want you to notice from this chapter of the story, Exodus and Leviticus. God was doing something new 
with the nation of Israel. For us, it seems really old and archaic and, and a long time ago, but, but I want you to think through what their perspective is on this. this. This is completely new. This is something different. This is something exciting. This is something that he is instituting a, a relationship that was different from anything else he had ever done before. Out of all the nations of the earth, God chose Israel to display his glory to all the whole world. And essentially, he came to them and said, I'm going to come live with you. I am going to come live with you. Can you imagine God saying that to you? Hopefully you can. But in a very real, tangible way, that the Israelites saw his tent and they, they understood his rules. Is he back in the garden before man had rejected God's story? God God used to come walk with Adam and Eve. And they had this perfect relationship. God took walks in the garden like you would with a friend. And now, after thousands of years, God comes to this new nation and says, I'm going to come live with you. I'm going to pitch my tent in the middle of all your tents. I'm going to camp with you. I'm going to make my home with you. Do you, you see how God is moving things towards restoring this relationship that was destroyed by the first man and woman? And so in Exodus and Leviticus, in what we oftentimes think is the boring parts of the Bible, God is essentially showing Israel three things. And, and that's summarizing a lot. But he's essentially, we're going to sum it up as three things. Three things that need to happen in order for this relationship to work under this Old Testament system in which God is going to dwell in their midst. First, in order for God to live with them, they have to understand the rules for loving one another. If we're going to be a community, you have to know how to act towards one another, right? And so, he's going to establish rules for loving one another. Second, in order for God to live with them, there had to be a place where God would camp. And third, in order for God to live with them there, had to be something done about their sin. Watch how God introduces this whole section and he presents this idea to them that he's going to come live with his chosen people. Look at Exodus chapter 19. I'm just going to look at verses 1 and then verses 4 through 6. In chapter 19 of Exodus, we read on the third new moon, that means basically the third month after they came out of Egypt, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Sinai. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, in verse 4, he says, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, remember that word covenant? We've talked about that before. Remember with Abraham, he makes a covenant. It's a formal agreement, but it's a lifelong relationship, so it's bigger than a contract. Kind of like marriage, that's a covenant. Um, and so God makes a covenant with the people of Israel. He did this with Abraham, and now he's doing it with this nation. He says, if you will keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then jumping down to verse 8, the people answered, all the people together all the people answered together and said, 
all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. We'll do it. They're in. They believed. And they heard this covenant and they agreed to this covenant. And so at Mount Sinai, God made a covenant with Israel. God started a, a special relationship with this new nation. And essentially, he says, I'm going to dwell in your midst. And you're going to be on display for all the other nations. God said, I'm going to come live with you. In Exodus chapters 20 through 24, we find what's oftentimes called the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant. It's a list of rules. You read it and go, rules, 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 laws, case law. I mean, really exciting passages about oxes goring people and, you know, what, what do I do with all this stuff? But, but we read these chapters and again, it's our, it's our temptation to think this is boring. Just a list of laws. And, but essentially, Israel was this brand new nation. They'd come out of Egypt where for 400 years, Pharaoh had been telling them, this is how you live, this is what you do. And they followed the clear direction of what the whip told them. They essentially did whatever their slave masters commanded. But now, as a nation of priests, as a nation that had a relationship with God, God is showing them that in order for this new relationship to work, in order for Him to live with them, they first need to understand the rules for loving one another. About 1,400 years later, uh, somebody else comes and, and talks about how we love one another. Do you remember his name? Whew, I'm so glad you got it. Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. Uh, Jesus comes along, and um, you see, they were just focused on keeping all these rules. They, they, count, they, had, to, they had to count for them. I think the 613, right? They'd account for all the rules and, and they had missed out on the beauty of the relationship that God had wanted with His people. And one of the Pharisees came to Jesus and he asked him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And what's beautiful is Jesus had an answer for him, didn't He? What did Jesus say? Do you remember? Yeah, it wasn't all in unison, but I heard it a few times. Good. Love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. But then he said something else, didn't he? He said, and a second is like it. So he didn't just answer the question. He says, I've got two for you. Love the Lord your God, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You see, Jesus summed up all of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the whole Old Testament essentially, in those two commands. Love God. Love your neighbor. If this relationship is going to work, you have to understand how to love God and how to love your neighbor. And so this first section, the book of the covenant, is something that you're probably familiar with. The first, the first few verses of it. Uh, we call it the Ten Commandments. Ever heard of those before? Yeah, we talk about them a lot uh, in our culture and in our, you find it on websites. And I did a search for them and I found all kinds of different sites with the Ten Commandments, all kinds of lists, all kinds of misspellings and things that were really confused. And, uh, and I was just curious. And yeah, it was all messed up online. But, but people at least know that, that there are Ten Commandments even if they can't get, what, get them right. And if you look at those Ten Commandments, you can split them up into two different groups. Uh, if you look at the first four commandments, let's look at those. What are the first four? Number one, 
there it is. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. If you were to summarize those four commandments, uh, you, you couldn't give a better summary than what Jesus gave. It comes down to it. What's he saying right there? Love God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and not with all your mind. And those four commandments right there are a basic summary of how we love God. And, and so the first to explain the essence of how the Israelites were to love God and have a relationship with him. You want to guess what the next six do? Love people. Yeah, you got it. The next six commandments explain the essence of how the Israelites were to love their neighbor. And so he goes on and says, honor your father and your mother. Well, that's kind of your first neighbor, isn't it? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. What it means to love your neighbor, doesn't it? It's a good summarized list. You see, God, God's not up in heaven wringing His hands thinking, <laughs> how can I make their lives miserable? Is he? Is that what all these are for? I just want to take their fun away. Uh, me and my brothers used to play lots of Legos. Any Lego fans here? Oh, come on, admit it. You know, there's got to be more. Th thank you, Kyle. All right. Um, I know you're more enthusiastic about it than that, but you um, used to love Legos. Still do. And, um, you know, we'd have a whole box full of instructions, right? And, and all the Legos from all these different kits would be thrown into this one box. And you look at it and go, where are they all at? And so we get those instructions. What do we do? Yeah, right? We're going to build something great. And so we would build this gigantic castle, and it would be multicolored and all kinds of weird stuff. And by the time we were done, I mean, there's this masterpiece, right? It was atrocious, but it was so cool, and we had so much fun with it, but it looked nothing like what it was supposed to in any of those instructions. You follow those instructions, and you end up with cool spaceships and neat castles, and, and it looks exactly like what it's supposed to look like. And you see, when we come to the Scripture and when we come to commandments like these, you have to understand that, that is there anyone, if there's anyone who, who understands how we're made, who might it be? Yeah, God, the, the one who made us. The one who built the kit and put it together in the first place. And so he puts together a detailed list of instructions because he says, I, I know how you work. I know how I made you. I know how you're supposed to function. And I know what's not going to work. And there's a lot of things that sometimes seem like fun, seem like mixing it all together, and if we change up all the rules, well, this is going to be really fun for our lives, but what ends up happening? It usually ends up looking like this atrocious mess that a two-year-old put together, um, and we mess up a lot of that. And so as we look through these, understand that He, he created us. He, he knows how life works best for us. And so when he gives us instructions, he, he does so because he wants us to enjoy him and he wants us to enjoy one another. And for Israel, he was telling them, if, if I'm going to live in your camp, if, if I'm going to dwell with you, then, then here are the rules that are going to guide you to understand how you are to love me and how you are to love others. If you are, keep reading all the laws in the next several chapters, uh, really what you find are, is case law. 
you find these Ten Commandments, which are summarized by love God, love your neighbor. And as you continue to read through all these laws, what you're really finding is case law. God is giving them examples of what those Ten Commandments look like in real life. And so when you come to Exodus chapter 21, verse 28, and you read this really exciting passage about what happens when an ox gores a man or woman to death. Oh, you guys love that one, don't you? You read it over and over and over again. And yet, if you study it, you go, wow, this is actually pretty amazing what God has done here. You see, what you're reading is just a real example of what God means when he says, you shall not murder. Because, you see, the commandment is bigger than just throwing rocks at each other, isn't it? The commandment to not murder one another, it's, it's bigger than me just not killing somebody else on purpose. It also means that you need to control the animals that you care for. And if you don't, you're responsible. Today we call them pit bull, pit bull laws. That's kind of a term. I know some people don't like that term, but we have laws like that in our own land that teach us what it looks like not to murder somebody and how to value the life of another person. And if you actually look really closely at these laws, what you discover is that unlike the codes of ancient Mesopotamia, which we have today, and unlike the codes of ancient Egypt, which we actually have today, you read these laws that Moses gives to the Israelites that God gave to them, and they're different from these laws in Mesopotamia. They're different from the laws in Egypt. A lot of the words are the same. A lot of the form is the same, but then God changes things. For example, in the law of the goring ox, not only do we see inflation from those other laws in Mesopotamia, but God also says, guess what? Women are valuable too. Slaves are valuable. And so if an ox gores a woman, guess what? There's responsibility. In all those other ancient laws, women were just property. And so, if, you know, you didn't have to pay a price for it. Too bad. If a slave was lost, you had to pay 20 shekels of silver. But then you come to the law of Moses, and what does God say? Women are important because they're people. You shall not murder. And if you don't take care of your ox, you are responsible for that. And so in God's law, we find the value of human life. And in all these laws throughout these chapters, we look at it and go, ugh. But the Israelites looked at it and went, wow, what a priority God puts on people's lives. And they started to understand what God meant when he said, you shall not murder. You shall not lie. You shall not commit adultery. So God wants, wanted the Israelites to understand what he was, that he was going to come live with them. And therefore, they needed to understand his rules for loving one another. Loving him. But there also had to be a place where God would camp. And they need to understand the rules for worshiping him. And so if you read through Exodus chapter 25 to 31, uh, he gives them some very specific instructions about how to build the tent where his presence was going to dwell. And, and they built furniture for that tent, which was part of their worship. God gave very specific instructions. And if you read very carefully, what you find is the people obeyed very carefully. They, they followed those instructions to the detail because they knew that what God said matters and this relationship mattered and him living with them mattered. Just like we should care about God wanting a relationship with us and the details of that relationship should matter. 
The way that the tabernacle was built demonstrated that God was holy and He was to be treated with reverence. He was to be treated with awe. And you, when, you, when you read about the Holy of Holies, the Israelites understood that the room where God's glory was going to come and dwell. And they saw the effects of it with a cloud that, that, that came up over that, that room. They understood that, that God was not to be approached by anyone. There was only once a year the high priest was allowed to go and it was under very specific rules, very specific regulations. He had to make specific offerings for himself and purify himself from his own sins. And on that one day, that day of atonement, he was to go in and he was to take the blood from some of the sacrifices for the people and he was to sprinkle it on the ark. He had specific instructions and he could only enter that room one day a year. Now, as you read through the next few chapters, unfortunately, the, the nation of Israel, they failed to obey the covenant, didn't they? Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days, and the people said to themselves, what's taking him so long? Something must have happened to him. And so, yeah, they, make, they take all the earrings, Aaron says, give me all your earrings, they throw it in, and later on Aaron says, well, it just kind of hopped out. And so they make this golden calf, and they worship it, and they played. It's a polite way to say this was no longer PG-13. And they, they broke their covenant almost as soon as they had made it. There was judgment. Several thousand people died uh, by the hands of the Levites who were following God's commands, and then a plague that took place. But, but what we find is, is Moses intercedes for the people. He prays for the people. In fact, Moses even says, Lord, I'll, I'll give up eternal life. I, I will give up everything if you'll just save them. Keep your covenant with these people. And God restores that, that relationship. He restores the covenant with the people. It changes some things, but it became obvious very quickly that the Old Testament was a picture of something even better that was to come later on. That following these rules... As much it was, as it was regulations for how to live with God in your midst and how to love one another, that, that ultimately something else deeper and something else better and superior was needed. We'll look at that in a minute. In the book of Leviticus, uh, another one of those really exciting books that, that we all love to read again and again and again, right? Essentially, God was showing the Israelites the third thing that they needed that needed to happen in order for this relationship to work. The, the theme of Leviticus is God's holiness. And throughout this whole book about approaching God with sacrifices and about being set apart for a walk of holiness, it, it becomes abundantly clear that if God is going to dwell in the midst of Israel, then something has to be done about their sin. And so in the last month before they left Mount Sinai, um, the book of Leviticus is written. And the book of Leviticus happens. And God gives them these instructions. And, and essentially, we, we find instructions about God being holy. And you might know the phrase, what does he say to the Israelites? You shall be holy because I am holy. Uh, Exodus chapter, uh, excuse me, Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 19.2, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Ex Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7, consecrate yourselves. Be holy, for 
I am holy. And so Leviticus has this theme of holiness throughout it. And when you see all these instructions about worship, what it all comes down to is that the Leviticus, the, 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 not just the Levites, but all of Israel had this relationship with a holy God. And if they were going to live with him in their midst, then they had to learn what it meant to be holy like he is holy. And there were rules that went with that. Specific rules about worship, specific rules about what clothes the, the priests would wear, about the holidays, about the sacrifices. And as we've seen from the beginning of Genesis, again, we, we're told that our sin nature separates us from God. Have we noticed that? Have you noticed that? Right from the very beginning, we, we rebelled against God's plan. We rebelled against His holiness. And that sin separates us from having a relationship with Him, our Creator. Romans is going to later declare to us that all have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. That is, we all miss God's perfect standard. If, if holiness is a target and, and your job is to make a bullseye on every shot, what happens? You see what the, display, the story displays over and over and over again? and what our lives display over and over and over again, and what the Israelites displayed over and over and over again, was that we don't just miss the mark. We trip every time. We stumble and we end up shooting the other way. I I don't just get a little bit off. I I don't just get the ring around the bullseye. I, I fire the other direction. That's how far off I am from God's holy standard. And the wages of sin, we're told, is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death. A spiritual death. Eternity separated from God in a place called hell that was created for Satan and his angels. So like the Israelites, if we are going to have a relationship with God, then something has to be done to deal with our sin. In the book of Leviticus, God institutionalizes the shedding of blood. Have you ever seen that when you read through Leviticus? Blood, 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 sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. And a lot of repetition because the details of those sacrifices were important. The instructions regarding how the blood was to be shed and, and how it was to be, how it was to be uh, distributed, that was important. You see, sacrifice had already been established from the garden when, when he made coverings for Adam and Eve. Um, did God make fig leaves? No, he put animal skins on them. Where did those animal skins come from? Somebody's blood was shed, right? There was a picture for Adam and Eve right away that death happened. And it should have been their death, but something else died in their place. There was a substitute. Uh, We find um, Noah making sacrifices. We find Abel making sacrifices. Throughout Genesis, we've seen sacrifices being made. But, but when we come to Exodus and Leviticus, God institutionalizes this system of sacrifices. He shows us how desperate we are because of our sin problem. He shows us how holy He is and, and that that holiness has to be taken seriously. He shows us how desperate the penalty is. Things die, and it should have been me should have been me because I'm the worst of sinners 
And so for centuries, the priests carried out the instructions of the book of Leviticus. And the blood of bulls and goats was constantly flowing in order to cover up sin. There were times in Israel, certain feasts, where there were rivers of blood flowing out of the city. It was gruesome. It was death. It was horrible. And there was a constant picture in front of people of how horrible sin is and and what incredible consequences there are for sin. And every time they made a sacrifice, it was a picture that that should have been me. That should have been us. Innocent animals were killed in place of the people of Israel because God loves people and said, I'm going to make a substitute because I love you. What we see in this very important chapter of the story is that God is still in relentless pursuit of having a relationship with mankind, just like He has from the very beginning, right from the moment they sinned against Him. God said, I have a plan. I'm going to send a deliverer, one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And now as He works with this individual nation, God continues to pour His grace out on mankind. Sin brought the penalty of death, and so God put a system in place that temporarily, what does it do? It, it, it covers the sin of the people. Now I want to take a minute to point out something that we learned when we studied the book of Hebrews together a couple months ago. The Old Testament w- was good. And what it showed was that God was still interested in a relationship with mankind. And the Old Testament law was good. And it showed us how sinful we are. And it demonstrated our need for God. Our need for God to take away our sin. A need for God to make a way because we're not able to do it. I can't create a solution for my sin problem. You are unable to save yourself from your sin problem. You can't do it. There's not enough time And you have absolutely no ability, even if you did have all that time, to accomplish enough that would save yourself from your sin. You have a sin problem. But the Old Testament was only a part of God's unfolding story. And and, and all these instructions about tabernacles, tents, and, and holy days, and sacrifices, what we find is that these were temporary because they were pointing to something that was better. Pointing to something else that was superior, that was still yet to come. And if you got anything from the book of Hebrews, that's something superior is what? It's Jesus. That's something better was Jesus. And, and we see that Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is superior to the angels. Jesus is superior to the high priests of the Old Testament. Jesus is superior to the Old Testament law and He has offered a superior sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats It had to be offered over and over and over and over and over again because the value of their life was limited. The solution of their sacrifice was only temporary and ultimately all of those sacrifices pointed to something else that was still to come. It pointed to the superior sacrifice of Jesus and His own blood. And so it was almost 1,500 years after the giving of the law in Exodus and Leviticus, that Jesus died on a cross. And then He rose again. And when He ascended into heaven, Jesus didn't just go to an earthly tabernacle. He didn't just walk into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle His blood on the Ark of Covenant. Where did He go? We're told that He ascended into heaven. 
and he walked right into the Holy of Holies, which stands in heaven, the real Holy of Holies that the earthly one was just a pattern, patterned after. He entered into the true Holy of Holies, and Jesus, we're told, died for our sin. He rose from the dead so that we, we never have to make another sacrifice of blood again. And, and when Jesus entered into heaven, He made it possible for all who believe in Him to have direct access to God our Father. Talk about God dwelling in our midst and having a relationship with Him. God is still pursuing a relationship with us. God is still saying, I want to camp with you. I want to live with you. But rather than a tent, rather than a room that separates us from this holy God, Jesus made atonement for our sins and the God, and God the Holy Spirit has come to dwell not in a tent in the middle of the camp or in the middle of the nation, but where? In our own hearts. The Holy Spirit dwells with you. Furthermore, God's law is no longer etched on tablets of stone, but, but for those who have received His good gift by believing in His Son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins, He now writes His law in our hearts. And, and we are enabled to love God and love our neighbor because Jesus first loved us. And He's not just having us follow a list of rules, but He's established a relationship that is alive. There's a story of a minister who preached one of the longest sermons of his life on the subject of forgiveness out of a passion for the subject. And so when he asked the people, how many of you are willing to forgive your enemies? About half of them raised their hands. So upset with that response, he preached another 20 minutes. And then he asked them, how many are willing to forgive your enemies? And about 80% raised their hands. So he preached 20 more minutes. And he asked a third time, now, how many of you are willing to forgive your enemies? And all but one elderly woman raised their hand. The minister asked her to stand and come forward. And he says, tell me, ma'am, how, how old are you? 93. How is it that you are able to to forgive all of your enemies. And she says, I don't have any. He says, how have you lived 93 years and you don't have any enemies? And it's at this point that she said, I've outlived them all. <laughs> you see, on the outside, it looked like she was conforming to the laws of God. But like all of us, as it turns out, on the inside, there was another story. You see, without Christ, the best that you can do is imitate a form of godliness. It may look like it to others that you are following God's rules. You may be able to conform to the laws of God on the outside to some extent, but only God is the one who can change your heart. Only He is able to forgive your sins. And it is only through faith in Jesus Christ that you can receive grace that He freely offers you. Have you come to know the life that God offers you through Jesus? Have you come to know the joy of a relationship with the God who says, I want to live with you? 
If you've come to know His Son and His Spirit dwells in your heart, then I'm with this instruction from Hebrews chapter 10. Where He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for being a God who loves relationship. We believe that you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so for eternity, you have been a God who has been in a relationship, the most perfect relationship that has ever existed. And that's the pattern for any other relationship is we find it in you. We understand what it means to love because you've shown us what love is. You patterned love from eternity as you loved the Son and the Spirit and they loved you. We thank you that you're God that wants a relationship with us. And we know how far we have fallen from your perfect standard. We know that we can't do it. And so we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us on the cross, who made a perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice that was once for all so that we don't have to offer individual sacrifices over and over and over again. It's finished. It's complete. So Father, help us to love you, to enjoy this relationship with you, to live out this life of loving one another as you've loved us first of enjoying you dwelling in our midst and your spirit living in our hearts. Father, if my, my friends here, if there's anyone who doesn't know you at this point, I, I pray that, that you would come to live in them, that they would come to know what it means to have Jesus Christ as their Savior, that their faith would put in you and what your Son accomplished on the cross. Might they repent of their sins and turn to you for forgiveness because you are our only hope. Father, we adore you and we give you praise today for being a God who said, I want to live with you. Amen.